Welcome to Voices. I'm Amy Luna. And you can help to support my voice by clicking on the link in the description of this episode to subscribe to this podcast. In this two-part podcast, I'll be sharing my own criteria for how to identify an intelligent voice from the heart, a definition I have crafted by listening to, absorbing, and synthesizing the intelligent heart voices featured in my Voices exhibit. And we need a guide map to identify these voices, because especially in times of social upheaval, intelligent voices from the heart guide us to paths of safety, respect, and progress for all. In part one, I'll expose how socially imposed sex segregation makes the precious and essential resource of intelligent heart voices a rare commodity. In part two, I'll provide a guide map to navigate us to the achievable treasure trove of a world in which intelligent voices from the heart are not the exception, but the self-perpetuating norm. We generally speak of head and heart as though they are in opposition to each other. But the use of either one without the other leads to some very unfortunate outcomes. Quote, We must combine the toughness of the serpent and the softness of the dove, a tough mind and a tender heart. Martin Luther King Jr., civil rights activist. Our mind is a potent tool that has evolved to protect us with some powerful survival instincts. A miracle of evolution, the human mind is like a turbocharged car that can take us where we need to go, but only if we're behind the wheel. Without an understanding of how our minds work, that car can drive us off the road in ways that disempower ourselves and our world. Similarly, acting only from our hearts without discernment can unintentionally lead to enabling toxic behaviors and systems that ultimately do great harm. Guidance is needed to learn how to harmonize head and heart to achieve our individual and collective goals, what I call the art of the smart heart. Quote, All religions share a common root, which is limitless compassion for the suffering of others. The Dalai Lama, spiritual leader of the Tibetan people. Well, that is kind of the problem right there. Let me explain. As a seeker, I've participated in many different religious traditions. I was raised in the Catholic Church, but I realized at a very young age that I couldn't look to a male supremacist religion for moral guidance. The disqualification of women in church leadership and decision-making authority, ipso facto, ruled out Rome as my touchstone for how to live a moral life, in the same way I would reject a white supremacist religion as an arbiter of integrity. But I found that while Western, Eastern, and even indigenous faiths all do communicate wise teachings. They all shared a common thread of a sex-segregated worldview that, in my view, creates indomitable obstacles to living a moral life from the get-go. Then one day, I heard a talk by Tenzin Palmo, 
that answered my lifelong quest for noble truth. In my earlier Corona Voices podcast episode, I introduced Tenzin Palmo as a Buddhist master and one of the icons in my Voices exhibit. Tenzin Palmo taught me that spiritual truth lies in the center point of balance. But she also taught me that the guide map to that center point is different for different people, depending on which side you're on in a binary social structure. Masculinity and femininity are discrete categories defined as binary polar opposites. What's feminine is, by definition, not masculine, and vice versa. Tenzin Palmo realized that the doctrines of major world religions were conceived by male leaders. So the guide map to the center is from the perspective of one side of a binary opposition. Historically, in male supremacist cultures of all races around the world, men were socialized to have a strong sense of ego, and women were socialized to have none, to, quote, submit to their husband's will, for example, something still taught in churches today. Patriarchal systems defined men as the subject to be addressed, women and children as appendages to his person in the form of the family over which he rules as the father. Terms like mankind and the use of the words man and men to refer to the members of a society and the fact that it took decades of women's advocacy in the U.S. for men to recognize women's status as civic citizens, are all evidence of the propensity to see women and children as contained within men's identities. So men talked to other men about how men could lead a moral life. More compassion. Throughout history... Males and females have been raised in fixed roles segregated by sex. And socially segregating a culture by any demographic will create two separate, distinct cultures. Imagine, for example, that all men are on one planet. Let's say, oh, I don't know, Mars. And all women are on another planet. Gosh, let me think. Uh, How about Venus? And right in the middle between them is Earth. And Earth is the destination. But the trajectory to travel there is calculated by the male mathematicians on Mars. These navigators think of themselves as subjects and their women and children as their physical objects, part of their luggage on the migration of life. Except, because of social sex segregation, psychologically, women aren't with them on Mars. They're way over on the other side of Earth, on Venus. And in order for men to realize this, they'd have to acknowledge that women have their own subjectivity and that when women attempt to navigate using the calculations of men, they end up flung far afield into the void of deep space. While men keep trying to get to Earth with empty suitcases. By the way, men conceptualizing women as space baggage is not an exaggeration. According to legendary female aviator and thwarted would-be astronaut Bernice Stedman, 
In the 1960s, astronaut John Glenn repeatedly called the females training for space, quote, 90 pounds of recreational equipment. Glenn testified to Congress after the program to train female astronauts was scrapped that, quote, the men go off and fight the wars and fly the airplanes. That women are not in this field is just a fact of our social order. So when churches teach humility, that was a lesson created in good faith, if you'll pardon the pun, by male leaders that was meant to balance male patriarchs' socialized egos by moving them towards the center. But that same lesson moves women, already taught humility, further from the center, and therefore creates more imbalance. Observing the meekness of Tibetan Buddhist nuns, Tenzin Palmo concluded that what these women needed to reach the center and to reach balance was, in fact, more self-esteem. While church leaders may teach us limitless compassion in our houses of worship, our civic leaders publicly scoff at the idea of practicing it in the world. When Republican candidate for president Ron Paul suggested in a 2012 presidential debate that U.S. foreign policy should perhaps be guided by the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, he was soundly booed by the audience. And candidate Newt Gingrich was vociferously applauded when he said, quote, Andrew Jackson had a pretty clear-cut idea about America's enemies. Kill them. It's time we're honest and admit that in gender binary systems, we don't really encourage or even expect men to express compassion. It's assumed that a society's moral balance is achieved by the heteronormative joining of a male and female. The male sets the boundaries. The female tempers that with compassion. The father handles the discipline, and the mother comforts. The Martian protects, and the Venusian nurtures. Men subject, women, men's object. And their united front constitutes a moral union in the family and in the world. They balance each other. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all have endorsed this idea with labels such as the 11-syllable euphemism, biblical complementarianism, to describe how God equally loves and regards the unique and different roles of women and men, in which men's role is to lead, euphemistically referred to as benevolent predominance, and women's role is to follow. This division of moral labor is necessary, male leaders of many races and ethnicities have told us for millennia, because men are strong and women are weak. So men must protect their women and children from outside threats, from the battling barbarians at the gate. And there are plenty of women of all races who have internalized the belief that women are weak and need men's physical protection from outside threat. That men protecting their women is as American as apple pie. This everyday protection is romanticized as chivalry. In the mid-1980s, 
I was visiting Houston, Texas, and decided to visit Gillies, the iconic honky-tonk dance hall featured in the movie Urban Cowboy. I wanted to ride the mechanical bull. The massive building was surrounded by a dirt parking lot, which I guess could get kind of dusty or muddy depending on the weather. But the management provided a small slab of paved concrete right in front of the main entrance where there stood a man-sized sign reading, Drop your women and children off here. If your instinct is to interpret this sign as a chivalrous courtesy to women and children, just gender flip it. Imagine a sign that said, Drop your men and children off here. I'm guessing that wouldn't feel courteous to men, that it would read as disrespecting their manhood, translation, their identity as subjects, in a world in which women and children are objects. Myself? I'd rather be a person with functional muddy boots than an appendage with debilitating spotless stilettos. Quote, A gender line helps to keep women not on a pedestal, but in a cage. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, U.S. Supreme Court Justice, co-founder of the Women's Rights Project at the American Civil Liberties Union. I adore courtesy. I practice courtesy to others and graciously accept courtesy from others. But true courtesy with no hidden agenda is recognized as such, no matter the sex of the giver or the recipient. If you can't gender flip it, it's not courtesy. To those who lament that chivalry is dead, I say, I'm dancing on its grave. But giving everyone the agency to offer courtesy to anyone else, regardless of sex, count me in. For example, I live in Chicagoland, where the winters are cold enough that Most buildings have a vestibule entrance, a door, and then a small space with another door right in front of it to create a buffer temperature zone. Usually, when I approach the first door at the same time as a man on the street does, he invariably moves to open it for me. I graciously accept this kind offer of courtesy, but then I'm in front of him after we go through that first door, and so I reach the second door first. Now, Some women would stand and wait for the man to reach around her in this tight space to open the next door for her again. But to me, that's nonsensical. Instead, I open the second door for the man to pass through. When I do this, I get an interesting range of responses. I would say that half of the men simply refuse to accept this offer of courtesy and even become annoyed with me. They will block the people behind them waiting in the cold to enter until I rescind my offer of courtesy by entering the second door in front of them as I should. The other half of men are momentarily perplexed. After all, chivalry teaches men that it's rude to pass before a woman into a door. But I smile my brightest smile and say, after you, letting them know that I'm okay with them treating both of us with humanity like equals. More often than not, the man brightens up, happy to receive this kindness, and as he passes by me, 
still with the same smile on my face. I say a cheery, men are people too. My experience practicing this equal display of courtesy has taught me that the population of men is very diverse. Some are more concerned with maintaining their gender role ego identity than being in the moment and accepting a kindness from another human being. While other men are relieved and even touched to have their own humanity acknowledged in this way. Try it yourself, women. Open a door for a man and see what happens. Then you'll realize that chivalry is not about courtesy. It's about maintaining a gender binary in which women are framed as weak and men assisting them is framed as heroic. But women aren't allowed to be heroic for men. Think about that. Courtesy is always beautiful. But socialized supremacy? Ugliest sin. Which is what it is. A sin. Historian Jacqueline Dowd Hall's book, Revolt Against Chivalry, chronicles the amazing life of intelligent heart voice Jesse Daniel Ames. A Southern white woman from Texas and radical anti-racist who founded the Association of Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching in 1930. Over the next 10 years, at great personal risk for her own life, Jesse Daniel Ames tirelessly gathered over 40,000 signatures of white Southern women on a pledge not only condemning the racist practice of lynching, but also the male supremacist lie that lynching was a necessary act of chivalry to protect white women. The pledge states, quote, We declare lynching is an indefensible crime, destructive of all principles of government, hateful and hostile to every ideal of religion and humanity, debasing and degrading to every person involved. Public opinion has accepted too easily the claim of lynchers and mobsters that they are acting solely in defense of womanhood. In light of the facts, we dare no longer to permit this claim to pass unchallenged, nor allow those bent upon personal revenge and savagery to commit acts of violence and lawlessness in the name of women. We solemnly pledge ourselves to create a new public opinion in the South, which will not condone, for any reason whatsoever, acts of mobs or lynchers. We will teach our children at home, at school, and at church a new interpretation of law and religion. We will assist all officials to uphold their oath of office, and finally, we will join with every minister, editor, school teacher, and patriotic citizens in a program of education to eradicate lynchings and mobs forever from our land. In every community, there are men and women who believe in committing violence against outside groups for the sake of protecting the honor of their women. And in every community, there are women and men who denounce the slandering of all females as weak in order to wrap violence and lawlessness in a cloak of morality. Even so, unfortunately, the male supremacist concept of chivalry is still very much with us today for those who believe in both violence and the frailty of women, despite the fact that women are equal participants in all warrior occupations today. From firefighters to special forces, women have proven time and again that skill 
and will count far more than one's sex when strength is needed. If I were to practice the philosophical principle of charity, I would try to imagine the best possible reason for why men still open doors for women in 2020, treating all women as universally weak. During pregnancy, women can be less physically agile than when they are not pregnant. In this case, we should all seek to assist pregnant women, regardless of our own sex. But some say that men opening doors and the like for women is a way for men as a class to honor women's unique role birthing humanity. If so, thanks, fellas. But consider the average woman in the U.S. has two children. So that's only one and a half years of her life that she may require this assistance while gestating. An American woman's life expectancy is 81 years. So we are treating all females as weak all of the time because they might be for 2% of their lives. That's a bit of overkill, don't you think? There are countless examples of how male writers conscript desirable females to model sexist slurs normalizing feminine weakness. In the 2008 movie Forgetting Sarah Marshall, written by and starring Jason Segel, good-time girl Mila Kunis shames Segel's character when he is afraid to cliff-dive into the ocean, yelling up to him, Come on! I can see your vagina from here! In the 2011 Steven Spielberg-produced movie Super 8, written by J.J. Abrams, the 14-year-old boy character Charles calls his male friend a pussy in front of 13-year-old Elle Fanning. Charles looks embarrassed for forgetting that misogynist slurs should be spoken only among males. But no matter, because even at that tender age, Elle's character already knows to be complicit in normalizing female weakness, laughing it off with an affable, (laughs) it's okay. Yeah, it's not okay. Just try to imagine two white characters in a film accidentally using the N-word as an insult in front of a black character, and the black character saying, it's okay. Never gonna happen. The problem with all binary sex stereotypes is that it ignores vast differences between individuals. The women's voices we are allowed to hear speak as though all women wear makeup all day, every day, get gel manicures, and adore their high heels, sip apple teenies with their girlfriends at lunch while complaining about the men in their lives, and that menstruation, childbirth, menopause, and aging are a hell for women, so men owe us. But that's just one type of woman, and many women do not identify with those ideas and lifestyle choices at all. One day, sometime in my 40s, I was shopping in Home Depot picking up bags of soil for my flower garden. When I got to the checkout, the overweight, middle-aged black female cashier yelled out to a black man standing nearby, Hey! Why are you just standing there? Help her with these bags. I stopped her short and said, No, 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 no. I don't buy into that kind of gender-shaming men. I want strong arms from womb to tomb, so I'll load these myself, please. And I pulled up my car to the entrance and proceeded to load the bags of soil into my beloved Acura Integra Pegasus, while the two of them 
stood staring, their mouths gaping, as though I were an alien from another planet that just shot laser beams out of my fingertips. Seriously, they could not have been more confused by my physical agency. A young Asian man who had heard this exchange walked by me as I was loading my car, winked and said, Stay strong. I loved him for that. Women of color have challenged this idea that women are seen as weak as being white feminism, and that chivalry was historically practiced for white women. Recalling Sojourner Truth's famous Ain't I a Woman speech, these women rightly point out that women of color have always done hard physical labor for white communities. But countless white women in America have also spent lifetimes performing backbreaking labor. And plenty of women of color today express entitlement to receive chivalrous behavior from men and even champion their passive sex object status as a rallying cry, such as, if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. Man acts, woman is acted upon. Man subject, woman object. Woman, it. The test of whether male supremacy is alive and well among us is how the men of your own race, ethnicity, or community respond when you challenge their authority. Remember, male supremacy is an ideology, not a demographic. Women and men of all races can be and are male supremacist. Consider that even today, many women romanticize the act of giving up their name to adopt their husband's name as a show of family unity. It's my choice, these women proclaim, as though choosing male supremacist norms were an act of empowerment for women. But it's not just a choice a woman makes for herself. Should she birth children in her union, the very first gift she gives her son or daughter, their name, is a lesson in male supremacy. Imagine if every time a black person married a white person, the black person gave up their own name and adopted the white person's name for their family, citing that white supremacist tradition practiced during chattel slavery as the reason for their choice. In every racial community, all women do not act alike. Some women openly challenge the male supremacy and violence in their communities, while other women hide or ignore those human rights violations in favor of joining with the men of their race in separate and unequal solidarity against an other. And both black and white women are pressured to silence their discontent with their second-class status for the sake of supporting the men of their community against outside threat, whether real or imagined. While male supremacy affects women of different races differently, it does affect all women, and it's also true that women who challenge male supremacy have much in common with each other across races, like having our voices gaslighted, ignored, and erased. Nigerian writer Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, author of the 2017 best-selling book Dear Ijiowele, A Feminist Manifesto in 15 Suggestions, writes, quote, I recently came to the realization that I am angrier about sexism than I am about racism, because in my anger about sexism, I often feel lonely, because I love 
and live among many people who easily acknowledge race injustice, but not gender injustice. Quote, Generally speaking, black people do not believe that misogyny and sexism and violence against women are urgent issues. We still think that racism, police brutality, blackmail incarceration are the issues that we should be concerned about. Dr. Beverly Guy Sheftal, as quoted in the 2006 documentary, Hip Hop Beyond Beats and Rhymes. The 2020 documentary On the Record illustrates the gaslighting, bullying, and silencing of numerous talented black women whose careers were derailed after naming black hip-hop mogul Russell Simmons as a predator. Feminista Jones, feminist writer, public speaker, and community activist, noted in a Time magazine article on black women's struggle with intimate partner brutality, quote, We cannot win this fight if we don't acknowledge any such fight exists to begin with. Women of all races share the common experience of the male supremacist lie that women are weak and inferior because throughout ancient and modern history, all across the globe, influential male supremacists of all races have repeated that lie over and over and over. Quote, the relation of male to female is by nature a relation of superior to inferior and ruler to ruled. Aristotle, Greek philosopher, 350 BC. Quote, All women, by their nature, are fragile and weak. They are attracted to the male in whom they see strength. Malcolm X, as quoted in the Autobiography of Malcolm X, 1965 A.D., published eight months after his assassination. on the front lines battling our societal epidemics of rape, human trafficking, and partner brutality can tell you, statistically speaking, the greatest threat to any woman's life and humanity, regardless of her race, class, or creed, is from a critical mass of male predators in her own community, whose depravities are normalized and enabled by the same gender binary roles that we are told are in place to protect women. So, Despite the proclamations of male voices from all over the world from antiquity to the 20th century and beyond, strong men acting from the head and weak women acting from the heart doesn't work out so well for women. Quote, When you grow up as a girl, the world tells you the things that you're supposed to be. Emotional, loving, beautiful, wanted. And then when you are those things, the world tells you they are inferior, illogical, weak, vain, empty. Stevie Nicks, singer, songwriter, recording artist, and voice in my collection. Turns out, it doesn't work so well for men either. Men commit 90% of homicides in the United States and represent 77% of homicide victims. They're the demographic group most at risk of being victimized by violent crime. They are 3.5 times more likely than women to die by suicide, and their life expectancy is almost five years shorter than women's. 
Labeling the heart qualities of compassion and emotion as unmanly puts an impassable obstacle in men's path to the center point of balance, sabotaging their ability to realize their full humanity. In 2019, the American Psychological Association released their Guidelines for Psychological Practice with Boys and Men. Thirteen years in the making, they draw on more than 40 years of research showing that traditional masculinity is psychologically harmful and that socializing boys to suppress their emotions causes damage that echoes both inwardly and outwardly. Quote, Love cannot exist in any relationship that is based on domination and coercion. Males cannot love themselves in patriarchal culture if their very self-definition relies on submission to patriarchal rules. When men embrace feminist thinking and practice, which emphasizes the value of mutual growth and self-actualization in all relationships, their emotional well-being will be enhanced. A genuine feminist politics always brings us from bondage to freedom, from lovelessness to loving. Bell Hooks, author, professor, feminist, and social activist, in her book, Feminism is for Everyone. I often hear people of all races say, as though it's the gospel truth, men and women are different. They just are. In 1992, John Gray published his book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, netting him upwards of $18 million. The book has been translated into 40 languages. Gray's credentials for pontificating on the innate proclivities of billions of people seems to be his own personal experience. Quote, I grew up with five brothers and, after I became a monk and lived around men, was celibate. So when I started being around women, they were from another planet. In a 2014 interview, Gray was quoted as saying, while his Mars-Venus books remain popular in other areas of the world, like Latin America, quote, feminism in America holds back the sales of his books. And further, quote, the reason why there's so much divorce is that feminism promotes independence in women. I'm very happy for women to find greater independence, but when you go too far in that direction, then who's at home? Watch out, ladies. Too much subjective personhood, and you could be the cause of the fall of civilization as we know it. People all over the world report that the Mars-Venus books have really helped them to communicate with their partner of the other sex. But what if these books are just manuals for how two people living half-lives can understand the other's limited language? What if these books only reinforce the imbalance that has been preventing us all from achieving the balance that could be. In the same year that John Gray was blaming that old scapegoat feminism for bringing down his book sales, Dr. Harry Reese, a leading researcher in the field of social psychology, who is credited with helping to launch the field of relationship science, and who actually has an accredited doctorate from New York University, published his research article, Men and Women Are from Earth, in the top-ranked, peer-reviewed Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. 
He and co-author Bobby Carruthers found that men and women are not categorically different when it comes to psychological traits. From empathy and sexuality to science inclination and extroversion, statistical analysis of 122 different characteristics involving over 13,000 individuals showed that men and women, by and large, do not fall into different groups. Because individuals are an amalgamation of many different qualities in many different quantities. People's own behavior does not suggest a one-size-fits-all male way of being in male bodies or a one-size-fits-all female way of being in female bodies. An older female friend of mine once remarked to me, Amy Luna, you could just see in children that all boys are the same and all girls are the same. Since she had a grown gay son, I said to her, well, what about your own son? Did he act like other boys? And she said, no, he was different. So is it true that all boys and all girls act the same? Or do we simply pathologize anyone who doesn't fit the stereotype as different? But what if the very idea of sex stereotypes is wrong? After all, we generally assume stereotypes are a bad thing, right? We don't generalize about all Jews or all gays, right? But isn't it just a fact that men are bigger and stronger than women? Well, it's a fact that the average male is bigger and stronger than the average female, which isn't the same thing at all. In fact, there's a name for the error of making sweeping generalizations for billions of individuals in different populations based on the averages for those populations. That error is referred to as the tyranny of averages. To illustrate this error, let's look at the example of temperature. The average annual temperature in Chicago is 50 degrees Fahrenheit. So, let's say you're packing for a visit to Chicago, and based on this annual average, you pack clothes that would be comfortable for 50-degree weather. But if you were traveling in August, that would mean you'd be sweating it out in 80-degree heat. And if you traveled in January, you'd be freezing in 20-degree cold. In other words, the average annual temperature across 365 days' worth of data isn't a very good predictor about what the temperature will be on any given day. Same with people. While on average, males are bigger and stronger than females, that doesn't tell us much about the differences between, say, one random male and one random female. If you plot the two bell curves of male and female height, they overlap. Quite a bit, as a matter of fact. Which means that lots of men on the low end of the male bell curve are shorter than lots of women on the high end of the female bell curve. So when we say that men are taller than women, where does that leave short men and tall women? That's the problem with stereotypes based on averages. In order to apply them to everyone in a population, a whole lot of people are then defined as abnormal. That's the tyranny of averages. When we're not trying to force people into Martian suits and Venusian dresses, we see that, as Dr. Reese's research confirms, if you look at people as individuals, you realize that's what they are. Individuals. From Earth. John Gray must have seen the academic writing on the wall because 
After building a financial empire and reinforcing global stereotypes about gender with books such as Mars and Venus on a Date, Mars and Venus in the Bedroom, Mars and Venus Starting Over, Mars and Venus Together Forever. In 2017, to little fanfare, he published the final book to date in his Mars-Venus franchise, titled Beyond Mars and Venus, in which he states, quote, The growing number of men and women who reflect their opposite gender tendency is a good thing because it means we are experiencing increased freedom to be who we truly are, independent of social expectations. Wait, what? Who we truly are? Like, maybe people? Finally landing on Earth. Together. So let's recap this specious sophistry, shall we? Men and women are from different planets. Except when they're not. And then that's a good thing. But those pesky feminists, who were pretty much single-handedly responsible for creating that possibility? Thanks, ladies. Now get back in the kitchen for the sake of humanity, would you? As Dr. Reese reminds us, quote, There are two categories of people. People who believe there are two categories of people and people who don't. The people who don't, present company included, don't get our voices heard all that often. Some who still hold Mars-Venus ideas about Earthlings advocate finding balance through a feminization of our culture, claiming a female supremacy of morality because of a supposed innate genetic evolutionary propensity of women to be compassionate because they give birth. Recently, for example, Demetria Hester, a leader of the Portland-based group Moms United for Black Lives Matter, stated in an on-camera interview, quote, We're protesting without any violence. We're moms. But as the victims of abusive mothers can attest, being a mom does not exempt a person from committing traumatizing acts of violence. Some women believe they are supporting women while unintentionally normalizing the false sex segregationist idea that all females are both saintly and weak. For example... Some women oppose the idea of trans women being admitted to women-only spaces of refuge because they may be male predators disguising themselves as trans women to gain access to females they can victimize, or that trans women, having been socialized as men, may socially dominate women in the same way that cis men do in mixed-sex settings. While there certainly are documented cases of men feigning trans identity to prey on women and girls in this way, and there certainly are trans women who are not aware of their implicit entitled social conditioning as men, using these very real phenomena to set a standard for all trans women is flawed, in my opinion. First, because it's always wrong to restrict all members of a population because some may commit harms. That's called guilt by association. Trans imposter predators victimize women because they're predators, not because they're trans. Second, it assumes there are no female predators in female-only spaces, and females are perfectly capable of abusing others. Third, 
It also assumes that a group of women cannot detect and deflect a male predator in their midst. And fourth, if we're so sure men are predators, then shouldn't we also be taking steps to protect males from male predators in male-only spaces? See the problem? It's another way of perpetuating the lie that women are weak. To me, the solution of male predators pretending to be trans women is to educate women and girls on the red flags of predation by anyone of any sex, and also to teach women and girls how to set firm and healthy boundaries and to call out our culture for calling healthy boundaries unfeminine, and also to teach our sons to respect females' boundaries and stop normalizing the idea that no means yes. No means no. When I make these arguments, some women accuse me of victim-blaming. But giving women credit for having the capacity and agency to detect and deflect predators from their lives is actually empowering women. Sometimes trans activists claim that because trans women are so oppressed, they can't possibly be exhibiting the dynamics of implicit male privilege because they were raised as males. But a person can be privileged in some ways and discriminated against in others. In fact, most of us are a combination of some kind of entitlement and another kind of oppression. So, I've just broken down a few thousand years of faulty, sex-segregated social and moral philosophies. In part two of The Art of the Smart Heart, I'll let you in on my plan for replacing all that with a new paradigm that has the power to transform our world. If my art and ideas have added value to your life, please consider adding value to mine. Check the description for this podcast episode and whatever platform you're using for a link to sign up as a supporter. Or visit amyluna.com to learn how to lend your financial support to Team Beauty. You can also join my email list to hear first each time I drop a new dress in the collection and find links to add your voice to my social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. That's amyluna.com, A-M-Y-L-U-N-A, where you can also download the Voices podcast theme for free, featuring quotes from the luminaries in the Voices collection. And remember... Make choices for voices of intelligence and heart. Till next time. Art is nothing but heart. Flying solo, flying free. And the moments of awareness all linked up. There is light and love and intelligence. Flying solo, flying free. We have always.
Espero.